In our final podcast in this set, we're again joined by Atul Gupta from Trilegal in India, and we're covering other key relevant employment law topics in India. So, Atul, um, key developments, we understand that the Indian government is expected to introduce a new labour code this year. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and what's expected? Sure, Tim. So whether the labor codes will be enacted this year is frankly now anyone's guess at the moment. In fact, uh, they were supposed to be enacted in April uh, 2021, but uh, that timeline has been pushed out for various reasons, including the pandemic, protests from various trade unions, etc. Right. So at this point of time, very little clarity exists as to when these are likely to be enforced. The hope and expectation is that they will come into force uh, relatively soon, but no one has a firm uh, sense of when that is going to be. Now, to provide more context, the Indian Labour and Employment Law Framework has, has traditionally been perceived as being fairly, you know, sort of rigid, very, very pro-employee, in many places, outdated and confusing, right? Now, so as, we, as I was mentioning, even in our first podcast, uh, India has several hundred labor legislations, both at the central level and the state levels, and a lot of delegated legislation to go with it. So any employer doing business in India and who has, let's say, offices and establishments or factories in, in more than one state, right, has a fairly large task when it comes to complying with Indian employment laws, right? Now, uh, there's been a huge demand to make these more business friendly, to at least remove, you know, unnecessary procedural compliances uh, or provisions that are unnecessarily uh, harsh on businesses, right? So what the government has done is it's taken 29 codes, uh, uh, or rather existing labor laws, and sort of punch them together into four new codes. These are the code on wages, the code on social security, the occupational safety, health and working conditions code or the OSHW code for short and the industrial relations code. Now, all of them, all of them have as part of our legislative process been approved by the parliament, received even the presidential assent, but uh, the final step of having them notified and implemented remains to be done. Uh, there's a lot of delegated uh, and, and state level legislation which is still missing. It's yet to be created. So we anticipate that's only going to happen. These codes will only be notified once the, those legislations are in place. And could you give us some uh, brief highlights of the, each of the codes? Uh, sure, really. I mean, uh, the, the codes are vast, right? Because they are consolidating several uh, several legislations together. But I will spend a few minutes uh, providing just the key highlights on each of the codes. I'll start with the wage code, right, which uh, has consolidated four laws uh, relating to minimum wages, the payment of wages, uh, payment of bonuses, and equal remuneration. What is the most drastic change by the being proposed by the wage code is the concept of a floor wage. So India doesn't have a uniform minimum wage structure. Minimum wage varies from one state and location to another. What is going to happen is uh, there will be a floor wage prescribed by the central government, which might vary based on geographic location. But uh, once a floor wage is prescribed, 
state governments can't prescribe the a lower minimum wage right below that i anticipate this is going to help expand industry and businesses into uh, into varying parts of the country and not just concentrated in few locations uh, right so i think this is a positive change uh, apart from this the the wage code has made provisions regarding equal remuneration gender neutral previously under the current er law only women enjoy that protection um, from an ease of doing business perspective you know offenses have been decriminalized in many ways there is no jail term prescribed unless there is repeated similar offenses within 5 years uh, offenses can now be compounded uh, which means you know you don't have to go through lengthy uh, court proceedings and you can sort of enter into a sort of settlement with the authority now but not everything is positive there are some changes which could be a little bit more difficult for organizations to grapple with for example under the current payment of wages act which determines what deductions can be made uh, from a person's wages right uh, the the scope of the law is limited in most states it only applies to people earning below about 2000 uh, 24000 indian rupees per month or which is about 240 gbp now the the new wage code seems to be removing some of these limits it's not clear if some of it will be implemented through delegated legislation but if it is indeed made open to everyone which would mean it will cover people in even senior positions then a lot of the benefit structuring that we currently do right which involves uh, uh, payments to employees and potential recovery from them clawback provisions malus provisions all of these might get impacted right so that is something that organizations would need to plan for there is a new definition of wages alone itself in the codes which uh, could have an incremental cost impact on organizations for example some components which are very commonly counted as being part of things like minimum wages like a house rent allowance right for reasons which aren't very clear seem to be excluded from the definition of wages right now right so we'll need to see how these are being interpreted as these codes are implemented but organizations need to be mindful of these potential impacts so that was the wage code i'll deal briefly with the occupational uh, health and working conditions code now this is a, a pretty massive code which uh, consolidates about 13 legislations dealing with contract labor interstate migrant workers factory workers building and construction workers mines dock workers etc right so it's a pretty massive code uh, what it is proposing is rather than having multiple registrations wherever you might have an a factory or an establishment you could have one registration and one consolidated return which is going to help out with the uh, uh, operations uh, the oshw code proposes uh, broader health and safety obligations on all employers who would now be required to ensure that the workplace is free from all types of hazards right and uh, there is also obligations cast on employers to conduct uh, regular health checkups for employees uh, at least those who might uh, uh, you know be about the age of 45 uh, now apart from that you know there are more positive obligations on disposal of hazardous and toxic waste etc now to diversify the workplace provisions for the health safety and welfare of transgender individuals in the workplace also form a part of the code uh, now uh, another positive change is that 
while so far existing laws have tended to be quite restrictive around women working during nighttime hours the OSHW code recognizes that women can work at night as well as in dangerous operations uh, subject to some safety conditions now one significant development under the code right which i would want to uh, spend uh, a, a few minutes on is the changes to the laws around contract labor now what the new codes uh, and the OSHW code is proposing is that there cannot be any engagement of contract labor in core functions of an operation of, of any establishment right now up until now the existing laws required the government to specifically notify certain operations or industries in which contract labor cannot be engaged now these types of notifications were very few and far in between because of which organizations often would engage contract workers even in core operations so the osh code now changes that regime significantly right now at the same time what it is doing is it's creating a new definition of contract labor to start with right now what this definition states is that if there are people who are regularly employed by the contractor under mutually accepted conditions of employment and who get periodic increments in pay, social security benefits, etc., from that employer, then they will not be treated as contract labor to begin with, right? So this would allow organizations to not treat employees of you know good service providers right who hire employees for their own business needs on an ongoing basis and not just to deploy them to one specific client project right so it would allow them to exclude this group of people uh, from the very ambit of contract labor to begin with right and therefore this would also help ease with the compliance burden so there is a balancing out where you know there is of course a, a bar on engagement of contract workers in in, in core functions who amounts to contract labor itself could uh, end up being a smaller population, right? So there is a balancing out of, of those uh, burdens under the OSH code. So that was the OSH code. Uh, I will briefly talk about the industrial relations code. Now, this is one law which does bring about uh, some uh, very uh, you know, important changes, which the industry has been uh, expecting and hoping for for quite some time right so the first and most important uh, change being proposed by the industrial relations code right is that there are clearer rules around recognition and bargaining with trade unions currently most states in india do not have any specific rules or laws around which union i need to be recognizing which union should i be bargaining with Right, and very often you will find competing unions in the same establishment raising varying demands. It can get very, very complicated. What the new code, IR code, is proposing is that if there is a single union that's subject to certain criteria, it will become the sole negotiating union. If there is more than one union, the union which represents 51% of the employees will become the sole negotiating union. And if no union has that 51% uh, representation from the employees, then a bargaining council, right, will be formed or a negotiating council will be formed 
with uh, members from unions which have at least 20% employee representation, right? So this level of clarity, I think, goes a long way in, in smoothing out industrial relations, right? Now, a couple of other changes which industry will find useful is, uh, you know, it will become harder for workers to go on unannounced flash strikes or, you know, large scale casual absences, which will all be clubbed together under the common definition of a strike. Employees and workers will have to give a minimum 14 day notice to go on any kind of strike. And once that notice is given, conciliation proceedings with the Labor Department can start, right? And if that officially does begin, then any attempt to go on a strike in the during the pendency of those conciliation talks would become illegal, right? So this will make uh, operations smoother and, and organizations will hopefully be held uh, to ransom in fewer occasions by their workers, right? Especially if they have uh, un unreasonable demands. Uh, now, few other changes that the IR code proposes is it revises the threshold basis which uh, certain obligations have to be adhered to. I mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts that India is one of those few countries where uh, factories, mines and plantations need prior government permission to retrench even a single worker. That applies to factories, mines and plantations with 100 or more workers in most part of the country today. The IR code is revising that limit to 300 workers. Although this has been a sore point for the unions who've been pushing uh, back against it. Uh, there's also something known as create or standing orders law, which essentially is a sort of mutually negotiated uh, uh, rules of service, which the labor department also blesses. Now the, the new code is proposing that this will be required in establishments with 300 or more workers, whereas presently it might be required even in, in smaller establishments. Right. So uh, this is a, a fairly important quote in terms of uh, the proposals it's making. Uh, there is also recognition of, uh, <clears throat> sorry, fixed term employment, uh, which will make hiring of employees in, in short term roles or gigs or, or, or uh, projects a lot easier. It comes with the, with the, with the requirement to pay them gratuity on a prorated basis, even if they have worked for less than five years, but it will make engagement and, and exit of such individuals a lot easier. Uh, one important change is that establishments with 20 or more workers will necessarily need to establish a grievance redressal committee. And this is uh, a committee which will need to have equal worker representatives on it and so it's not just the management creating a, a committee with its own management representatives. Workers will have a role to play in, in grievance redressals and, and workers could potentially even challenge their own terminations before the, the grievance redressal committee, right? So while the, the path to creating this committee is going to be a little bit more challenging for organizations who aren't used to these kinds of structures, um, in the long run, Right. It could help reduce the number of instances where there are disputes that go out uh, and, and get fought in labor courts. Because if the GRC with even worker representatives find that a, that a terminated employee's grievance is, is, is not meritorious, uh, I would say that's a reasonable indication that you know they might not succeed even if they were to try and appeal that uh, in front of court. 
so all in all it can create a environment where with better uh, clarity around negotiating unions uh, uh, better clarity around when service rules have to be created grievance redressal committees etc the the instances where there are disputes uh, which might drag on for years reduces because of the new ir code uh, now this brings me to the last of the the four codes the social security code is again a very significant piece of legislation and uh, it consolidates laws relating to subjects like provident fund employee state insurance maternity benefits gratuity uh, employee compensation etc right uh, interestingly the ss code now creates uh, enabling frameworks for gig workers and platform workers it recognizes that these types of workers are also in need for access to social security so it's proposing that there will be a, a special fund and a board uh, with a special scheme that would uh, extend to these types of unorganized workers or gig workers right uh, there are some other relaxations which organizations will find uh, uh, useful for example uh, they can be sharing of crash facilities uh, each organization doesn't have to create its own crash uh, the government is empowered uh, in times of stress like you know uh, pandemics epidemics national disasters to defer contributions to social security schemes so that employers uh, are not pushed towards uh, un, uh, you know significant financial burdens and these are all learnings from the pandemic right now i think the most important uh, area that everyone is interested in is the new definition of wages itself right which is common across all the codes uh, it's a fairly complicated definition with certain components treated as included within the definition of wages some of them which are excluded some of which are excluded for some purposes but not the others right so uh, as far as Uh, making things simpler go i think the code has failed but uh, it is a it's going to be a new regime which organizations need to be mindful of and i anticipate one of the the immediate outcomes of these new definitions once the code is in place is that there could be incremental cost impact on organizations who may have to pay larger sums towards some benefits like gratuity uh, provident fund for international workers etc so i'm advising all organizations to to take a very close look at how their compensation is currently structured examine what components might be treated as inclusions what might be exclusions and see if that compensation structure can be recalibrated in a manner which meets with the code's requirements and also minimizes your cost burden right some organizations are presuming that 50% of the of the salary has to be basic wages some of those are misconceptions so i think these are areas where a significant amount of thinking needs to uh, go into the codes and how you are structuring the wages thanks that's all that some that's really interesting um what so what are your thoughts on the effect that the codes will have on india so i think uh, you know given the uncertainty around when they will come i anticipate there is going to be some amount of time uh before you know these are actually put into place and you know there is requisite institutional and logistical supports for them to be properly up and running uh but uh, i think 
these codes can have a significant impact on on how india is perceived uh, in the eyes of international businesses on on ease of doing business in india right we have improved our position in recent times and i think the labor codes will aid in improving it further as i said you know some of the provisions have been made more business friendly they are less harsher you know decriminalization compounding all of these will help organizations uh, focus on on compliance for the sake of compliance and not just because you know there is some fear of of you know un, untoward prosecution now uh, of course i think the codes in itself can't do that in themselves in terms of you know uh, how india is perceived for doing business it will have to be married with other uh, economical reforms as well uh, but having said that i think the codes are uh, a step forward many have criticized it as being just uh, old wine in a new bottle and and yes i mean it's it's not completely inaccurate because a lot of this is just a sort of amalgamation of existing provisions but uh, i think there are at least some key areas where uh, the codes are doing a lot to to try and uh, make things easier for both workers and establishments and and i think that's going to be uh, you know worthwhile uh, for organizations uh, to see actually being implemented so the pandemic's seen um, a huge increase in remote working um, in the UK, and this has um, really accelerated a trend that became, began even before the pandemic. Is this a trend that you're seeing in India? Um, and are there any other trends that you're seeing um, uh, emerging as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think uh, as, as we are seeing internationally in India too, right, and we've gone through multiple waves of, of, of COVID, unfortunately, uh, we are seeing an increasing number of organizations adopt some form of uh, remote working, either sort of a hybrid partial remote working or even some of them uh, examining complete remote working models. Right now, Indian law and legislation, be it the current laws or even the proposed codes, don't do enough to actually regulate this sufficiently. Right, Even the uh, the new codes uh, don't have any significant provision of this. They simply talk about how uh, employers and workers can sort of, uh, uh, you know, agree to work from home, right? Uh, or sort of in mutually accepted conditions. But there are lots of complexities around uh, remote working, which uh, are unfortunately not being addressed by any legislation today. There is a need for a special law on this. Uh, which uh, I I hope the government will put into place because I anticipate that 100% uh, back to office is probably not going to happen, even in the long term. And, you know, after we're finally out of this pandemic. Uh, now, you know, of course, the, the reactions to the pandemics have led organizations to sort of get comfortable with, with this remote working and, uh, and this is likely to stay. Uh, organizations will need to plan about how they would comply with state-specific laws if they have remote workers uh, working from locations outside of their physical office uh, locations, right? For example, someone might have an office in Bangalore, but uh, its employees might say, we want to work out of New Delhi or out of Mumbai, where it doesn't have an office or an establishment. How does it then comply with local laws? Does it extend local benefits? Does it pay local professions tax? 
you know, these are the questions which none of the legislations today are, are answering. Um, there has been limited court uh, uh, derived jurisprudence. Uh, there was a Kerala High Court ruling recently where uh, the court sort of took a, a very balanced view. And this is a view that I have from sort of uh, called out uh, many, many months in advance as, as, as you know, organizations came to us for advice. But it sort of echoed that view and said that, listen, if, if an employee is, is working remotely for their own personal preference, right, out of a choice of their own location, uh, uh, sorry, a location of their own choice, right, then uh, the organization shouldn't then be burdened with having to deal with uh, sort of benefits or compliances or disputes in that location. It's a different view if let's say an organization is placing employees for its own business interest in some other location, maybe sales employees, service staff, right? Where it's where deploying people in that remote location is, is a commercial decision meeting for, for meeting some of the company's business requirement. Whereas if it's a, a personal choice of an individual, right? I think it needs to be viewed differently. And that's how I'm sort of also recommending to organizations that you structure your remote working policies and contracts, right? We record whether or not it's in fact a, a business prerogative or, or a personal choice that an employee is making. Great, thank you, Basil. I think that's a lot of a lot of issues for a lot of employers in around the world dealing with these transitions that um, we're seeing in the in, in the workplace. Um, very finally, you've obviously given us a lot to to, to think about in terms of uh, in terms of. Um, key key issues in India at the moment. Are there any other issues that you would like to flag um, to businesses who are uh, employing people in India? Yeah, Tim, I think uh, one of the other areas where I'm constantly receiving requests for for guidance is uh, how do we how do we deal with vaccines, right? And uh, that's become a significant concern for many multinational companies who want to stipulate mandatory vaccinations for their employees, at least for those you know who are coming into the offices as they reopen. Now, India has a very complicated regime around it. The central government has said that vaccination is voluntary, but because there were uh, significant waves and a lot of uh, deaths and, and pressures on hospitals, a lot of the state governments have, have uh, sort of indirectly said that vaccines are mandatory. They're pushing businesses to ensure that their staff are vaccinated. Now, we have seen that these rules and orders keep varying over time. They, they become more harsh when we are in the middle of a wave. As the wave subsides, some of these orders also go away, which leaves organizations in a very confused state as to what they can do. Uh, right. Uh, so far, the trend of the court decisions has, has been that you know it's not really likely to find favor with a vaccine or a discipline a regime where uh, people might have the ability to dismiss or terminate staff if they refuse to be vaccinated. Uh, the, the one uh, ruling in uh, that we've seen of a Bombay High Court uh, was in the context of a vaccine or test policy where they said that if uh, a company has facilitated vaccination for its employees and they aren't still willing to be vaccinated for various reasons, it would be fair for an organization to then put them through regular testing uh, at their own cost, right? Uh, from a health and safety standpoint. 
So that's a very quick summary of what we are seeing in the in the area of uh, vaccinations and whether or not they can be mandatory and and what organizations can do uh, in this respect. Uh, but it's a very nuanced subject and the position on this is constantly developing. So I would always recommend that organizations always check uh, the latest developments before they choose one way or the other as far as their internal policies go. Thanks, Atul. That, that's incredibly helpful. And um, so that wraps up our series on India. Um, so if you have any queries on the topics we've discussed during these podcasts, please do get in touch with us or Atul. And then please do look out for our next series of podcasts. Thank you.